Welcome, everyone, to Episode 70, New MS Therapy. I'm Dr. Kiki here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? Everything's good. I'm actually traveling with the family in Vermont, and get this, staying in a tiny house. Have you ever heard of these tiny house? Oh, yeah. Portland is famous for the tiny houses. The capital of tiny houses. Wow. <laughs> it's not even that tiny, if I'm honest, but it's way too small at the same time because I have two kids, you know. I'm, like, pressed up with my seven-year-old, and it's not even a twin bed. You couldn't even call it a cot. But it's it's nice. We're out in the woods. We're doing, I guess you would call it glamping because we have running water, but we're, we're right. really remote in a tiny 300-square-foot unit. But it's fun. I can understand spending short periods of time in a tiny house, but in, with a family of four, and especially if you've got animals on top of it, you know, the living in the tiny houses, it's like you want to be single or just maybe there be yeah. two of you. So you're yeah. not... What I keep thinking is, like, if I were a writer going on a retreat to, like, finish my novel, I would do it here. Uh, Not the place for a week with two young kids. Right now, I'll be honest, all the the surface area of the floor is covered with Lego bits because my kids, (laughs) you know, have have been building not quite effectively, but building, making a mess of the place. So I don't know. We got four more days left. We'll see how it goes. Well, at least, you know, it'll be kind of like Home Alone the movie series, if anybody tries to come in and break in, they're going to be stepping (laughs) all over the Legos. Yeah, I didn't think of that. I didn't think of that. There you go. Home security. Thanks. Thanks, God, for the kiddos. (laughs) That's right. Okay, let's get down to the actual podcast business. Make sure you engage with us on all of our channels. The easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com, where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools. Like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released. It's going to contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. I don't know. It it seems like it would make your life easier. It makes mine easier. Signing up also for the Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And, of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right, Dalen, we have a great show today. I'm kind of excited about this. Our guest for episode 70 is Dr. Mark Friedman. His latest study received a ton of national press regarding a new possible therapy for multiple sclerosis. We're really looking forward to talking with him about this a little later in the show. But first, we have the roundup. Are you ready to go? I'm ready to round it up. I'm ready to listen to you round it up first because, you know, that's what you do so well. So let's get on with it. The Science Roundup is sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tocris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that will optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to StemCellPodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. All right, Kiki, I'm ready to hear some science. Will you start the roundup, please? Oh, yeah. I've got some fun science here. So, fish. We like fish, right? Of course. Yeah. Well, some fish are a lot faster than other fish, and one in particular is like the cheetah of the fish world. 
the swordfish. It's among the fastest fish in the, of the fishes in the ocean. They can cut through the water at about 90 kilometers per hour. Wow. It's really fast. So these Xiphius gladius swordfish, how do they go so fast? Is it just that they're using their muscles and working it? Are they just streamlined? Is that it? Well, they're swordfish. Aren't they, like, cutting through the water or I something? I know. Is it like, are they, like, the race car design of the fish world? Is that how it works? Well, in competitive swimming, we know that swimmers shave their bodies before races to reduce drag. We also have these new suit designs that they've used in the Olympics and other places to make the swimmers more streamlined, to be able to cut through the water, have less drag so that they can go faster. Researchers just published in the Journal of Experimental Biology that there are little tiny pores in the swordfish head that is linked to an oil-producing organ that oozes oil out onto the swordfish's head and lubricates the surface of the swordfish skin so that it goes even faster. So basically, these fish are oiling up (laughs) when they want to go fast. Well, I mean, I was afraid you were going to tell me they were doping, but this is essentially the same thing, those cheaters. (laughs) I know. So they've got these uh, little structures. They're called denticles around the pores, and they're kind of like scales, but they're made uh, similar to how teeth are built of dentine and enamel. And the scientists who are involved in this study, they're from the Netherlands, they think the lubrication and these textured denticles work together and make a water-repelling surface that cuts down on drag and lets the swordfish just cut right through the water. That's amazing. Like a Ginsu swordfish knife. You're back to the Ginsu. You love (laughs) Ginsu. I mean, I got to see you cook someday. I got to stand back, I guess, because the Ginsu is going to be flying. They'll be flying. But you're feeling the Ginsu. You know, I I think you got to let Mike Phelps know about these denticles. Man, it might be the next phase in uh, competitive swimming. Get you some denticles and some grease and get shit through the water. I know. We'll see what happens with those swimmer suits come the next Olympics. Moving forward, how about the placebo effect? Nobody really understands how the placebo effect works. We know that you can sometimes take a sugar pill and feel great. Your symptoms go away, whatever they are, for a short period of time. Your mood is boosted, whatever. How does this happen? How does the brain actually not only boost mood, but also affect the immune system? Well, researchers publishing in Nature Medicine did some experiments on mice in which they increased the activity of nerve cells in the ventral tegmental area. And this is a part of the brain that is involved in the dopaminergic reward system. They found that the activation actually had not just an effect on the moods of the mice, but also an effect on their immune systems. So a day after these VTA neurons were activated, the mice were infected with E. coli bacteria. And then they tested later, they found that the mice that had been activated, their brains had been activated, had fewer E. coli than mice that had not been activated. How did this happen? Well, it also seems that monocytes and macrophages, immune cells, these killer cells that devour bacteria, were ramped up also. There were more of them, and they were more active in the bodies of the nerve cell activation mice. And so this is possibly offering some kind of an explanation for how 
positive thinking or reward stimulus activation can affect the placebo effect. So kind of like you take a placebo that makes you feel good about yourself because you're doing something and then it potentially ramps up your immune system as a side effect because of this uh, reward pathway activation. Yeah, that's totally plausible. I, I wonder yeah. about the reverse. I'm sure that's the obvious extension that they're probably working on already. Is like depression and sadness and all that type of stuff correlated with getting sick or depressing the immune system? I wonder. It is, actually. Yeah. So uh, mood disorders are associated with um, higher or lower activation of the immune system. Ah, okay. So that's already out there, and these guys are looking at the correlate. Wow, exciting. I, I never yeah. thought that someone would actually base a study on defining what is behind the mechanism behind the placebo effect. But, I mean, it, it goes a long way towards explaining why this effect is so prevalent in all these trials of medicine. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something that you know that it's going to happen, and so it has to be built into study designs. But at the same time, we don't know why. We don't know how. We don't know exactly what is going on. And so this is a step in that direction. I mean, something that I think is that needs to be looked at, though, I mean, the reward system is also very involved in addiction and not just, mm. you know, mood. So is there a negative or a downside to this? Is there too much activation and stimulation? Right. Like right. What, what is the threshold level to actually boosting the immune system and not doing negative or doing damage? Yeah, God knows drug addicts aren't necessarily, you know, the, the, the healthiest, the, the strongest immune health, right? Yeah. But something that is getting stronger is the ozone layer. Yes! It's coming back, baby. I know it is. It's coming back. There have been lots of reports over the years that the ozone layer could be recovering from the damage we uh, we did to it from putting all sorts of chlorofluorocarbons, ozone depleting chemicals, out into the environment over the last century. But thanks to the Montreal Protocol, which was a treaty implemented in 1989, and it's so amazing to me that it was 1989. It seems like it must have been much longer ago than that, but it wasn't. Anyway, the Montreal Protocol, countries around the world have banned chlorofluorocarbons, and as a result, there's less of the CFCs going into the atmosphere. And researchers from MIT, MIT atmospheric scientist Susan Solomon and her colleagues, used a sophisticated 3D atmospheric simulation to tear apart the forces acting on atmospheric ozone and try and figure out what was naturally happening, so natural fluctuations, versus what people have actually been doing. And they suggest that about half of the ozone hole's recent shrinkage is from a drop in the CFCs in the atmosphere, and the remainder is as a result of weather changes. But this is good news because it shrunk by about 4.5 million square kilometers. What does that even mean? Is that like 50% smaller? <laughs> um, it's, well, it's about the size of India. Oh, wow. It is a significant reduction in the size of the hole. And this, the ozone hole is a problem because it's a way that ultraviolet radiation can get into Earth and affect human health. The ozone layer helps to shield us from that radiation. So let's reduce cancer. Let's close the ozone hole. We're half. We're halfway there. We're yeah. four million square miles closer. That's I guess. right. Right. That's right. 
I remember in the 80s, I actually remember everyone talking about the ozone layer like it was the biggest deal in the world. That and acid rain. Where yep. are we on acid rain? Are we, have we made a dent that's, in that? That's really a good question. I don't know. Sometimes these things spring up. It's a big, everyone makes a big deal, and then 20 years later, no one talks about it. But I guess the ozone layer, at least we made some strides. That's a good question. I'm going to look into that. That's a really good question. Next episode. <laughs> And on the heels of shootings that occurred in the last week, there is a story published in PLOS One, the Public Library of Science One, finding evidence that school shootings and mass killings, which are defined as four or more deaths, actually spread contagiously like an infection. The contagion period lasts about 13 days. And this is potentially linked to national media coverage. When shootings receive local news coverage, which is when uh, the researchers say when at least three people are shot but less than four people are killed, usually the coverage is more local and not national. And they found that when there was not really any national news coverage, the killings did not have the same kind of contagion effect. So is it good for us to find out about these shootings that occur across the country, or is this something that can actually give people ideas and lead to more deaths. And so what kind of a role does the media play in the spread of gun-related violence? Yeah, I I mean, this is such a tough thing because, you know, the media is not going to stop covering it. It reminds me, I read a study recently, I guess maybe not so recently, about suicide being having the same phenomenon. You get coverage like Robin Williams committed suicide, got a lot of coverage, and there was a rash of attempted suicides in the wake of that. It's probably the same idea. I mean, get these ideas widely disseminated. Some people that are on the verge may just get tipped over. Yeah. It's a big question. I mean, how much do you talk about stuff so that people know about things, maybe know about risks, know about what's happening, who's involved, et cetera, versus, you know, the risk to leading to more of it happening? So this this is an interesting point of, like, you know, Media, cost-benefit analysis. Maybe we need need to be talking about it a little bit more. Um, And then my final story is there's a new, new, new possible test to be able to help determine which healthy young adults might be expected to develop Alzheimer's disease. And so there are genetic tests to determine risk for familial Alzheimer's disease. It's typically early onset. It's less common than sporadic Alzheimer's disease. Both of them can cause dementia, but the sporadic Alzheimer's accounts for about 95% of all Alzheimer's cases. So this is the vast majority. And how do we tell who's going to get it and who's not? Well, uh, a study published in the journal Neurology this last week suggests that Early in adulthood, people who have other genetic factors that are not related to the familial type of Alzheimer's might have smaller hippocampuses. So this is a brain region associated with memory. And they are suggesting that younger adults with different genetic risk factors maybe should be go in for MRIs to see how big their hippocampus is compared to uh, general population hippocampal size. The researcher who's involved in this says, however, we're not able to determine whether these young subjects with elevated risk actually progress to dementia late in life since that sort of extended follow-up is not available. Nevertheless, this finding informs our understanding of disease mechanisms by revealing an impact of common risk variants decades before clinical symptoms would be present. Hmm. 
So let me ask you something. If you could know whether or not you're going to have Alzheimer's, would you want to know? Let's say you were going to get it. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting question. This is like Huntington's disease. Yeah. If you know you're going to get it, you're, you're just going to get it, right? Right. I guess with Alzheimer's, there may be things you can do to try and retain memory as long as possible or yes. something. Who knows? So I guess it, it pays to have a diagnosis, but it's one of those things. We have so access to so much information about ourselves. It's a question of whether we want to know the things we can't. But at this point, it's, you know, it's like the, okay, there's a possibility. If you're looking at your family and you look through your family history, okay, my dad's side of the family has a history of skin cancer. I am a very pale person. I wear sunblock, right? <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to get it, but there's a high possibility. Right. My mom's side of the family has a history of multiple sclerosis. So I have an elevated risk compared to the rest of the general population. But it doesn't mean I'm going to get it, you know? So it's like, okay, try and be healthy, try and do what I can. And, you know, just by looking at your own family history, you know whether or not you have a risk. Right. You know, it's not the, it's going to get you for sure, but you know. And so I think people do kind of live their lives according to like their family history and what they know they're kind of in the pipeline for. Yeah, I saw recently Still Alice. You seen that movie? Mm Mm-mm. Ugh, gutting. Just vis-a-vis Alzheimer's. I mean, it's yeah. early onset in that case, but just ah. to watch that slip away, I mean, really, I can't imagine how tough that is. Yeah. Ugh. That's the age-old question. If you could have a choice between your brain going and your body being healthy or your body deteriorating and your brain being healthy, which would you choose? Yeah, well, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going down the tubes on both ends there. So. Ah, hardly. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but this is what stem cells are all about, right? The promise yep. of, of eternal youth. That's right, in five <laughs> to ten years, like we always say. Well, right. on the flip side of, of the age, the diseases that come with age, I'm going to talk a bit about youth. And unfortunately, I don't think it's a really bit of good news for myself, at least. We're talking about young stem cell scientists and funding, young scientists generally and funding to lead off the stem cell portion According to a study led by government scientists, younger scientists are less likely to get funded. Middle-aged and older stem cell researchers are crowding out younger scientists in competition for federal grants. So younger scientists get their proposals funded from the NIH at about the same rate as older colleagues, but older colleagues, they file a lot more grant applications and thus get more funding. The result is a workforce that's dominated by these older stem cell scientists, which is kind of a discouraging prospect for younger scientists who are entering the field. Remember that, you know, the the machine that runs the scientific funding apparatus is established science, science that you can build on, that has a very well-established foundation, and that you can incrementally add to in order to improve our general knowledge and perhaps provide these medical breakthroughs. But the catch-22 with stem cells is that it's a relatively young field, and young scientists are kind of faced with this prospect of gambling with a higher-risk funding paradigm, that they don't have the well-established research foundation necessary in order to compete for these grants that the older scientists have. Uh, and it's it's not just in, uh, you know, stem cells. The entire 
workforce that's funded by the NIH is aging. In 1980, less than 1% of funded researchers were 65 and over. By 2010, that's 30 years later, 65 and older, uh, researchers 65 and older, or PIs, they were exceeding 10% of funded researchers. This is a study published by Cell Stem Cell. I was looking into these numbers. And in the stem cell space specifically, the number of grants going to older stem cell scientists rose disproportionately. Between 2005 and 2014, the number of grants to those between 60 and 64 increased by a whopping 240%. Grants going to those between 40 and 44 increased by 80%. And grants going to scientists, you know, a bit older than that, 45 to 49, increased by 32%. And this is relative to grants going to scientists younger than 40 that are essentially flat. Gene Loring, a prominent stem cell scientist at the Scripps Research Institute, said that the squeeze is worsened for younger stem cell researchers because they're not getting the appropriate training from their mentors in how to apply for grants. As Loring says, who's 66, mind you, so she's well-funded, but she's not afraid to speak about the reality here. Writing grants is an art, says Loring. It's not something you can just learn how to do from a book. You really need to have somebody mentor you. And, you know, it makes you wonder. There may be a conflict of interest. These older yeah. researchers, you know, they want to get their grants. So uh, yeah. how, how invested are they going to be in mentoring the young scientists? So it may be a tough, tough issue that, you know, young scientists like ourselves are going to be struggling with. Yeah, this is fascinating to me that so many older grant applicants are receiving grants, that it's increased so much. And I don't know, it just, it, it seems to me, maybe it's something of that, um, I don't know, the old boys network, quote unquote, you know, the, right. and you're my friend, I like your grant, I'm going to review your grant, I like yeah. your grant, I like your grant, you know, and you know, basically the field is not so large that people wouldn't recognize the studies that the people they know are putting into the pile, and maybe they're going to be more likely to review those positively. I don't know. I, I can't say that that's, a, that's not going on. So Yeah, well, who knows what's going on, but yeah. to me, it kind of seems like an inside job. I've been yeah. applying for grants for a long while, and, you know, it's tough to break through, Kiki. i got to be honest. And if, and if young investigators are not getting the grants, then where's the future of the field going to go? Well, that's the real issue is, you know, yeah. for new and innovative ideas to come through universally, that comes from young minds who aren't constrained by the existing apparatus. So yeah. we really got to work. And, and the NIH, to their credit, has made a lot of efforts with these young investigator initiatives. But I think the review process has to be fundamentally uh, augmented to account for and maybe allow for uh, infusion of youth in yep. funding. Oh, well, but... <laughs> More money, more money, more. <laughs> <laughs> so from the poverty of youth to new models for stem cell science potentially. So this is an interesting study. First, a little background. You know, in terms of laboratory science, the mouse is the pillar of modern biomedical science. Why? For a lot of reasons. They're small. They're fecund. You know, they love to make babies. Their generation time is relatively short. They're 21 days gestation, 8 to 10 weeks to sexual maturity. And perhaps the most critical element is that there's all these technologies that have been developed to genetically engineer mice and to pass those traits along through the germline because of their short generation time. This allows for 
models, animal models, where you have specific genetic mutations that may approximate human disease. But here's the catch. A lot of diseases don't play out in mice, as you would imagine. Don't play out in mice the same way they do in humans. So what would be really nice is if we could kind of move or recapitulate all those technologies for genetic engineering and mutation of specific genes that are relevant to disease in a larger animal model, specifically a a model closer to human, like non-human primates. Well, the day has come where we may be able to get into this. So traditionally, it's really hard to do this with genetic engineering and mice even, but it's facilitated by stem cells. You can engineer the stem cells that are in culture growing in a dish, and then you inject them into a mouse embryo. They contribute in like chimeras. Some of those engineered stem cells go to the germline, and the sperm and eggs, and then they can become a mouse line where the whole mouse is affected by that mutation. And a lot of discoveries have been made on the back of this technology. But, you know, a a more shortcut to doing that would be to alter the embryos directly before they're implanted and form the fetus. But you haven't been able to do this in the past because the traditional methods, homologous recombination or whatever technology you're using to genetically alter the genome, are not so efficient. Enter Talens, CRISPR, the new technologies that are allowing genetic engineering with super high efficiency and precision. This is a group from Japan has created essentially a system for generating mutant non-human primates. Wow. In this case, they have a long process. They're working with marmosets, which is a non-human primate, and they're looking at a specific disease in humans called XSCID. Okay, XSCID, which is X, severe combined immune deficiency, is a disease where you have a specific receptor, this IL interleukin-2 receptor subunit gamma, IL-2RG, that's mutated. And this doesn't allow for the adaptive immune system to develop. Uh, So these are kind of the boy in the bubble phenomenon. They don't have this acquired immunity that can fight off disease, mobilize the immune system. So... In mice, this has been recreated. There's these mice called the NSG mice, the IL-2R gamma mutant mice. And the problem is that they don't really recapitulate the XGID disease perfectly. And as I said, they want to go towards a non-human primate model. Now, with the efficiency of these new technologies, this group used zinc finger nucleases and talons in a kind of modular system where they proof them in cells and then they proof them, prove that their efficacy in embryos and then actually generated or altered embryos, marmoset embryos, and implanted them in surrogate mothers. And what they found effectively now is that they were able to get 9 out of 21 neonates that were had mutations in this IL-2RG gene and showed that they were immunodeficient. And three of these neonates, you know, survival of these is iffy because they don't have the immunity, but three of these neonates have survived between 240 days to almost two years, okay? so Wow. And more than that, they, they seem to be showing a lot of the, the phenotype that's evident in the human patients suffering from XGID. So it's a really, I think, a good proof that you can, with high efficiency, recapitulate genetic disease in a non-human primate, not model. But here's the catch, I think, that no one's really emphasizing in the coverage of this article. The mice that are affected by this IL-2R gamma mutation are really important for stem cell research because they allow you to transplant human cells into an animal and see how they work without having them be immune-rejected. Yeah. 
So the real backdoor potential, I think, of these marmosets with the IL-2-RG gamma, or IL-2 gamma mutation is that we could be using tissues or cells derived from human embryonic or pluripotent stem cells. We can transplant them into these marmosets and see how they function in a real live animal model that's closer to human. So I think there's a lot of implications for this study for clinical and basic science. Yeah. For the the transplantation, is there any regulatory problems that we have to think of or yes. proper paperwork before you can put a human cell into a non-human primate? I mean, it's they yes. get so close, then all of a sudden people start having a lot of issues. Yeah. I mean, it, with stem cells, you know, they can become all the cells in the body. And yeah. There's all these committees governing use of, of research materials in each institute, but the clear potential here that's a bit bioethically tenuous is the idea, at least, yeah. uh, whether or not it's a possibility. You're going to have human brains or human gametes or right. human thoughts or human feelings going on in yeah. a laboratory animal, which I think is pretty far-fetched, but, you know, you got to go, go slowly, got to go carefully. Yeah, and transplantation is different from actually creating a chimera from the get-go. So, right, right. Yeah. Well, that's the other. That's fraught more than anything, <laughs> conundrum, but... This, I think, is really much more straightforward. Yeah, no, this is this is awesome. Yeah. Wow, what a neat model. These poor little well marmosets. But poor marmosets, yeah. They're but... <laughs> doing good. Have you ever seen a marmoset, by the way? Uh, yeah. They're really super cute. Yeah, they're very cute. Yeah. <laughs> poor sick little marmosets. Yeah. <laughs> sad. Not so cute when they're sad and yeah. sick, but they're doing good for, for human medicine, human studies at the very least. Thank yeah. you, marmosets. So next to something not so, I guess, far-reaching, but still very important, and this is human treatment of root canals or other dental disorders. Did you ever think that we'd be talking about stem cells as a therapy for the scourge of mankind that is root canals? I think it's so great. Yes, let's do we're, it. Yes. We're here. We're <laughs> at that point. Scientists at the University of Nottingham, combining with a group from Harvard University's Weiss Institute, are developing a new strategy that could someday, someday, help to heal a damaged tooth, not using, you know, a crown or filler, but a patient's own stem cells. Can you believe it? Although the work is still in its early stages and has not yet been tested in people, the scientists won an award from the Royal Society of Chemistry for this idea, Regenerative Dental Fillings. When dental pulp and, you know, gum disease, injury, all those things happen, a root canal is typically performed to get those infected tissues out. But, you know, those materials that are used to repair that are toxic to cells. This is kind of the reverse approach. Instead of trying to clean out and make that antiseptic, this approach tries to harness the stem cells instead. Dr. Adam Salise, who led the group, says to CBS News, what we found is a material that can potentially regenerate components of a patient's tooth. They're trying to provide an alternative material and an alternative therapy because the current methods involve removing all the pulp tissue, scraping it out. It's painful. And hey, if you have tissue in there that could be useful, why get rid of it, right? If it's not part of the problem, it might be part of the solution. At least that's what Dr. Solis thinks. We'll see how this plays out. The stem cell pre- procedure, it's, it's really in the early, early, early stages of development. And they've tested it in cell cultures. And now are moving it into an uh, animal model, in this case, rodents. So, you know, he says, quote, it's hard to put a timeline on it. 
but timeline on it, but we're ta- talking years before we test in humans. I love this. This yeah. is refreshing. He says it's hard to put a timeline, but pretty much it's never going to happen. <laughs> he didn't say five to ten years. He just said years. Yes, yeah, this is why I'm, I'm behind this guy. Dr. Salise, you're my man. A little bit of honesty and, and let's say, you know, clear and reasonable, plausible estimates. That's the most refreshing part of this story to me. Yeah. But let's not downplay it. A successful treatment like this could totally reframe the whole system, the whole paradigm for treating dental patients. You know, we're talking about millions and millions of patients each year. So the implications are pretty large. Yeah. And I mean, I think that dental medicine, they come from the philosophy of trying to save the teeth, right? Save the teeth. And this is really using the cells of the body of the teeth to save the teeth, regenerate the teeth. Let's do it. I love it. This is regenerative medicine. Yeah. Because, I mean, this is what it's defined as, and they're, they're following through. It's great. Oh, my. So here's another thing. We're trying to, trying to look at disease mechanism, you know, regenerative medicine and disease modeling. Those are the two major, among many other, but two major prongs of the stem cell push. This is a study where we're kind of using autistic patients to try and understand the mechanism behind autism and the phenotype of autism. All right, so researchers have modeled the development of neurons in some autism patients, and they think they may have some new understandings of the condition. So this was a study published in Molecular Psychiatry. Researchers, they generated induced pluripotent stem cells, you know, the patient-specific pluripotent stem cells, from skin samples that were obtained from patients with autism. These patients had been screened and had been shown that there was a phenotype whereby their brains had grown 23% faster than normal Mm. patients uh, when they were toddlers. So the idea was to generate the cells from these patients and see if they could define or recapitulate that phenotype. So they took the iPS cells from these affected patients compared to the normal or unaffected patients, and they differentiated them, drove them toward these neural precursor cells. And the neural precursor cells from autistic patients multiplied faster in vitro than the cells from the neurotypical people, which researchers say is supporting of the theory that abnormal brain growth or increased rate of proliferation of these neural progenitors may play a key role in the development of autism. Now, here's the thing. While they grew more, which, hey, some might say, hey, great, more neural progenitors, bigger brain. I love it. But while they grew more, the neural progenitors from autistic patients, they displayed less activity. Hmm. The cells from autism patients behaved abnormally. They displayed less activity from normal patients. And this activity could be improved. So the, the lack or the the, the reduced activity could kind of be rescued in the cells from autistic patients by adding IGF, insulin growth factor 1, which has been known to enhance the connectivity between neurons. So future researchers is meant to focus on how this IGF-1 works to increase the connectivity between neurons. And the idea is that maybe while there's increased proliferation of these cells but reduced connectivity, you may be able to mitigate the symptoms of autism in these patients by kind of enhancing the neural connectivity as these brains are developing. And to quote Rusty Gage, 
who's you know a real thought leader and has done some of the seminal work in neuroprogenerative growth mm -hmm. and neural development. To quote him, the technology allows us to generate views of neuron development that have historically been intractable. He's excited by the possibility of mm -hmm. using stem cell methods to unravel the biology of autism and to possibly screen for new drug treatments that might, and this is, that's the end of the quote, but these new drug treatments may be effective in restoring or rescuing connectivity and thereby mitigating the phenotype of autism. So another example of going into the dish to try and find treatments that may affect patients. Yeah, so, I mean, number one is looking into this IGF-1 to potentially treat autistic conditions. But then also with this stem cell model, neural stem cell model of autism, maybe they can go into figuring out why these cells grow so much faster. Why do they proliferate so much more? Why do they have 23% faster growth than normal brains? What's going on there? And then what is, even though they're growing so much faster, why aren't they talking to each other as much? Yeah. So there are all sorts of little mechanistic questions that can be addressed with this model. So Maybe, you know, even go beyond this kind of sledgehammer treatment of IGF-1, but actually go back into cause and be able to get some right. much more subtle treatment possibilities. The idea that springs to mind to me is maybe you're sacrificing the, the connectivity for the growth. And That's what it seems. And try and balance those things, maybe you could go a long way. And it, yeah. it also may explain why the penetrance of the phenotype of autism is so varied. Because these competing forces of proliferation and connectivity may, you know, be modulated in different ways depending on the patient background. So these are the yeah. type of questions that we can get at with this IPS. I think it's really exciting. So. And this is going to be maybe the underappreciated way in which patient-specific embryonic stem cells and the developmental models they afford may be the way that stem cells actually make their big splash in the clinic, at least one of the many applications that people are hopeful about. Yeah. It's exciting. It's really it is. Neat. Are those your stories? That's it for me, Kiki. I got those stem cell stories and That's just, good. you know, just surviving over there. Oh, but you left me on a high note there with that autism model story. I love it. Give me some yeah. neurons and I am a happy girl. I know you love those <laughs> neurons, girl. <laughs> All right, this was an awesome roundup. Remember that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right, let's get into the interview segment of the show. The interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies is always creating great resources for pluripotent stem cell research. Their latest tool is called the Pluripotent Learning Lounge. And you can find this pluripotent learning lounge, hang out in it at www.stemcell.com slash pluripotent lounge. And this is where you can hang out, find informative video webinars with stem cell researchers from around the world discussing how they do their research. What are the methods they use? It's a fantastic educational resource for anyone, whether an, a young scientist just getting PhD or doing a postdoc or somebody who actually has an established lab who's just looking for new methods and wants to keep tabs on what's going on in the research world. If you're trying to figure out the latest experimental methods being used to study pluripotent stem cells, this is going to be a great place for you to go. It's like a brown bag seminar and you never have to leave your desk. No one will have to know that you've got food in your teeth. 
<laughs> Does that mean someone's bringing me lunch? Yeah. So the latest guest in the lounge is Chad Cohen, and he's talking about me- metabolic disease modeling using genome editing. And he's got some great methods. So make sure to watch webinars, check out speaker bios, and interviews at www.stemcell.com slash pluripotentlounge. Okay, so today our guest is Mark Friedman. Dr. Friedman is currently professor of medicine in the field of neurology at the University of Ottawa, as well as director of the Multiple Sclerosis Research Unit at the Ottawa Hospital General Campus and a senior scientist at the Ottawa Hospital Research Institute. Dr. Friedman has published over 250 pieces, including articles, books, book chapters, and abstracts, and has been invited to give hundreds of lectures and presentations nationally and internationally. His extensive research includes the area of molecular neurochemistry, cellular immunology, neuroimmunology, and clinical studies in MS. A recent paper by his group reported a new breakthrough treatment for MS that completely wipes out the immune system and then regenerates a new one using blood stem cells. Dr. Friedman, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Hi there, Kristen. Hi, it's really great to have you. I'm glad that we were able to get some time with you for the interview. So, As we get started, can we give the audience a little bit of context for your work? And can you introduce yourself as a physician and a scientist? Yes, I can introduce myself as both. Uh, I'm I'm what they refer to as a dying breed of clinician scientists, which are people who go beyond just um, tapping reflexes as a neurologist to trying to understand what the disease is all about, and uh, in my case, trying to find ways in which we can treat it, if at all possible. Uh, My interest in cell-based therapies goes back probably more than a decade. When we think about the kinds of medications that we've used over the years to treat MS, all with their inherent problems, we thought back to how does nature do this and is there a way of harnessing nature's own way? And, And then the whole technology that allowed us to work with stem cells became really modernized and available and feasible. And so we launched into several projects. Currently, the hype has been all about uh, the use of of hematopoietic stem cells to replace an immune system that we can eliminate. And that study's been going on since since this century, actually. And uh, the other uh, is an ongoing study now looking at patients' own mesenchymal stem cells that are derived from bone marrow to see if they repair. Nice. So before we get into talking about those specific uh, areas of research, can we specifically describe uh, our current understanding of multiple sclerosis, the disease, its progression in its various states, and what are the current treatments that people usually use, like these drugs that you mentioned? Oh, you mean the current state of misunderstanding? (laughs) Okay. Uh, This is really an enigma disease, which uh, unlike uh, some of the other autoimmune diseases we're so common to hearing about, like rheumatoid arthritis, is unique in the sense that it is affecting only the central nervous system. Usually these other diseases like lupus and rheumatoid disease or inflammatory bowel disease like ulcerative colitis, they attack one organ, but the attack spills over and usually patients have multiple problems in multiple areas. So it's not uncommon for someone who has ulcerative colitis to also have arthritis uh, and, but, but the uh, MS disease is unique to central nervous system. Why that occurs any more than what we understand of the other autoimmune diseases is unknown. The usual story is that there are genetic factors that load the gun, 
but the the trigger is different and it may be different in different people it may be different in the same individual over time whatever triggers it is usually a mixture of how the environment interacts with a person's own immune system which is uh, even though you can take say identical twins which have exactly the same dna they will have a different immune repertoire because it's uh, you assemble your immune genes uh, randomly it's like uh, you and I having an identical bag of jelly beans with all the different colors, and we're each asked to reach inside and pick 10. The chances of us picking the same 10 colors are, are probably unlikely. So, so this is how uh, individuals or even identical twins assemble their immune repertoire. And it explains why, for instance, in MS, identical twins don't both get the disease. Because it used to be that if one twin got it, well, there was a good chance the other one did but the other one does uh, only about 30% of the time. So we know hmm. the genes are part of it, the environment is part of it, but the immune system is a big part of it. And since we can't change genes and we can't change the environment, at least not very much, not, not very much one thing that we can do is manipulate the immune system. So all the drugs that we have had that we've developed in the last, say, 25 years have all been directed at the immune system. And understanding some of the problems that have ensued in that immune system and targeting, say, a particular uh, mechanism has, in, in some people, led to good control over the disease. Right. So, say, infl inflammation, for example. Right. Taking steroids to control inflammation. Well, that's very nonspecific. You see, steroids are a very broad-spectrum anti-inflammatory but they're not something that you can live with for the rest of your life. Or yeah. if you take them for long periods, obviously it causes harm. Yeah. Dr. Freeman, in terms of risk, there's a few things that I've heard, you know, bandied about one, like in the Northern climes, people are at greater risk, maybe people are Caucasians because of light exposure. Is there any truth to that? Well, there's probably a lot of truth to all the theories. And, uh, and that's the problem that, Nailing it down beyond uh, the theory has been an issue. So is there something that about the light and what, what is light associated with? What is sunlight associated with? Well, um, we use sunlight to do a number of things, but one of the things it does is it modifies a vitamin in our system called vitamin D. It becomes activated by UV radiation. So the more sun-exposed areas of skin where you have UV radiation, the better the chances that vitamin D is activated. And we know that vitamin D is a cofactor in many, many uh, processes in the body. And uh, some of these processes are involving the immune system. And when one adds vitamin D to a number of the types of models we have to study MS, it looks like it's always in a positive direction. So lack of vitamin D might be a problem. We've done trials now where we've added vitamin D to other regimens, and some of those patients actually do a little bit better. So it's not, I don't think it's the, the one factor, but it's certainly one that we could isolate. There, there are probably a number of other factors that are associated with the change in latitude, obviously environment change and, and, the, and the, whole, the whole microbiome changes as you, as you go around the world and, and how the microbiome affects our immune system is really hot right now in trying to understand autoimmunity. Yeah, mm. huge. So with the cause, I guess, still outstanding, Maybe it's a good opportunity to elaborate on your treatment, which seems to be a kind of paradigm shift, rebooting the uh, immune system. Well, I have to admit that the original goal of that study, 
and uh, forgive me for being forever the the uh, pessimist and the skeptic. Well, that's a that's a good scientist, right? Yes, I trust you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> like, there's no way this is going to work. Was my initial impression. But the frustration we had in MS and probably in other autoimmune diseases as well is that you don't know the person has the disease until they start showing symptoms. And by the time they start showing symptoms, everything is already, you know, in full bloom. You look and you see all this inflammation. You don't know whose party is this, who invited who, why are you here, what attracted you, what was the first step in this whole cascade of events that led to this? And, and um, the more we try to figure that out, the, the more difficulty we have. If, in fact, my colleagues came to me and said, you know, we can wipe out the immune system completely and we can just uh, recapitulate ontogeny, so to speak, redevelop the entire immune repertoire from stem cells and under the same guidance of the body through the genes, etc. If it was all governed by genetics, then the person should redevelop the disease, right? Uh, and Assuming that you haven't changed anything else, so far all the attempts at bone marrow transplants had always led to a recurrence. You know, they bought patients a few years of quiet, Mm -hmm. but then the disease always came back. What was different was that in order to study the first event, you really had to be sure that you wiped out everything. So what intrigued me is the possibility that as the disease, as the immune system reboots, so might the disease. And if we were on site with our vigilance, we might be able to detect through our immunological assays, et cetera, the first initiating factor, which mm. would give us some insight as to what causes MS. So I was in it for the science, and I fully did not expect to get what we got. But essentially, what we got was a failed experiment. Because <laughs> that wasn't your goal. <laughs> you could, you got a total cure instead of resetting. <laughs> oh man, I pity you. And you could, so you I couldn't know. find any factors. You're like, wait, okay, we're still missing things. So what do you do with those patients? You just throw them out, I guess, huh? Reset. Yeah, yeah, you know, like they're, they're the failed mumps. Uh, no, obviously we were thrilled on the one side. I was disappointed from the science side because I thought here was an opportunity to really see what triggers the disease. But uh, nobody re-triggered, essentially mm. nobody. And in the longer we waited, and I kept saying, oh, it's just a matter of time. And everybody told me, yeah, don't worry, it's just a matter of time. Well, after a number of years, I said, hey, how much time? And they went, seriously, none of those patients actually redeveloped? There's just said, none, zero. There hasn't even been a new MRI lesion in anybody. And trust me, we looked three, four, five times a year on a regular basis. Nothing happened. Wow. When you look at the patients that we put into that study, they were all rip-roaring. So they had to have such aggressive active disease that from an equipoise, an ethics standpoint, they had to, uh, since death was a potential possible side effect of the treatment, what could offset death would be very poor prognostic. And so if patients are seeing a wheelchair within the next decade, and are willing to take a chance at a procedure that the ethics people felt that that was uh, meeting the equipoise that was necessary. So at the same time, we were being criticized by our colleagues going, those guys are so active, you're never going to shut them down. Wow. But we did. You know, it just occurs to me as you're talking, is the reverse possible that maybe one byproduct of, I know there's GVH, you know, grass host disease is a typical complication, but notwithstanding that, 
or maybe it's impossible to make these mutually exclusive, but would a transplant of someone who was maybe genetically at risk for MS into recipient who just had, say, leukemia or something, do you ever see increased MS in patients who undergo, you know, post-chemotherapeutic bone marrow transplant from an allogeneic source? That's a great question. We had the opportunity to study this probably um, oh, a few years after I moved to Ottawa. I was approached by a family who uh, had one, one young woman, uh, this happened to be the younger sister of a patient of mine who has MS, developed a very severe form of lymphoma. And the only match for her was her older brother. She needed a bone marrow transplant to cure her lymphoma. And the only match was her brother who had multiple sclerosis. Mm. So we thought, here's the opportunity to, to examine if the T-cell transfer human model exists. Because we know we can take T-cells from an affected mouse and put it into an unaffected mouse and get MS or get, get the disease, which we call EAE, that looks like MS, right? Yeah. So might the same thing happen in humans receiving cells from someone who has MS? So uh, I thought this was a wonderful opportunity. Again, it's science. Uh, sometimes offers us these, these unique opportunities. We studied both um, individuals, and, and the, she went ahead with the transplant, but unfortunately succumbed to her illness. Oh, man. And uh, despite my pleas and begs, the family would not agree to a postmortem, and we, we have no idea happened cellular. whether or not she developed anything that looks like MS. Uh, we never had the opportunity to study her. But uh, we, we don't get GVHD, graft-versus-host disease, with autologous transplants. That's why they're so um, well-tolerated, mm. because you're taking a patient's own cells and giving them back to them. That's not possible in somebody who has leukemia, because obviously the marrow is diseased. Yeah. So you can't give them back their cancer. You have to do what's called an allogeneic transplant. Now, serendipitously, some people who had MS but also developed leukemia or lymphoma and got an allogeneic transplant to cure their cancer were observed to have their MS much better. This is what started this whole business of potential for bone marrow transplants 20, 30 years ago. Right. With the uh, autologous transplant where you're taking the patient's own immune cells, where you're, what aspect of these cells were you cleaning up before you gave them back specifically? So uh, there's a couple of steps that were unique in, in what we did that other people didn't do. One is the conditioning measurement that where we used bucelfen and very high dose of cyclophosphamide. Those drugs are highly toxic, and in some cases people are afraid of them, but we wanted to use them because they got into the central nervous system. And we felt that if you did not knock out the cells everywhere they were, especially in the or target organ, and those cells could easily drift out sometime in the future, end up back in the lymph system, and re regenerate the disease. So we, we went after a regimen that had good CNS penetration that could remove those cells. That was the first thing we did. The second is, if we're going to go to this extent to wipe out the old immune system, we better be darn sure we're not putting anything back that could look like it was the same cell. And, and you can get these cells out of the marrow. So we obtained the uh, CD34 positive cells via just uh, stimulating the patient with, with a drug called Nupagen. It sends the cells out of the marrow into the blood where we can collect them on a machine. So the patient just sits at a machine for a few hours, you know, one line in, one line out, and the 
cells sift through this machine, all the white cells are collected. So now we have all these white cells, amongst which are a lot of the stem cells. But there's lots of other cells in there. And what other groups have done is they've simply used that. And we said, well, that's not enough. What if those cells contain some of the T cells that cause disease? We need to wipe them out. So we did what was called an immunomagnetic separation, which is a positive selection. We would uh, take an antibody that's attached to a small little iron bead and attach it to the cells. This antibody reacts to CD34, which is a marker of stem cells. And uh, then we would throw it through this column. And this column has a big magnet collar in the middle of it. We apply the magnetic collar. And of course, any stem cell that has an antibody on it that has a little iron bead is going to stick in the collar. And all the other cells will sift through. And so we wash the cells a few times. And so now, theoretically, we've got all the stem cells now sitting in the middle of this column stuck to the magnet. We release the magnets. All the cells fall down to the bottom of the column. We culture them a little bit. The antibody falls off. And we now have a purified CD34 positive stem cell collection, which is then frozen. Patient comes back. We wipe out the marrow. We sort of we wipe out their entire immune system. And then we give them back a new system via these frozen stem cells that are encouraged to then engraft and redevelop, which has been, in our testing, a fully immunocompetent immune system. So they, they, they don't sort of get a system that lacks the ability to react to viruses or, or, or bacteria. They can do everything a normal system does, but it no longer attacks the brain. Wow. Wow. Have you looked into, I know last year there was uh, research that uh, showed for the first time that the lymphatic system is connected to the brain, that there's a, a meningeal system that uh, connects the brain, the immune system, to the central nervous system, to the immune system. Is there any direction in your research where this might be able, this might come into play? Well, I think we've been aware of, of uh that for a long time. We've, we've been aware that the, this central nervous system drains into the lymphatic system. And we've known that in mammals that existed uh, in humans. I think they did some tracers some years ago and found it in the superior cervical ganglion. They just become more sophisticated in some of the work that you're referring to. Okay. Uh, but we've known about cerebral lymphatics for a long time. It used to be uh, when I started, well, I'm not going to tell you how long ago, but years ago, <laughs> People used to think the CNS was an immune privilege site so that the immune system doesn't get there. Uh, it's not true. It's not true at all. So there's, there's definite lymphatic movement. We know that. And that was our whole premise for using this uh, CNS penetrating chemo drugs because we, we knew that those cells are capable of coming out. And if there was an antigen presenting cell in the brain that would drift into the lymph nodes uh, outside the, the brain, it could re-stimulate the disease. Yeah. So with the research as it stands right now, there were complications from the wiping of the immune system from the process. So not everyone survived this study. Where are you going with it now? How much are you going to be broadening the study? Yeah, well, the, the death that occurred was very unfortunate, but occurred very early on. Mm-hmm. And it was at the time we were giving one of those two chemo drugs was called Bucelfin. And in the turn of the century, Bucelfin was only available as a pill. So it's very important to control the levels of these drugs in order to be able to predict what they're going to do. And as you can imagine, when you're taking something orally and you're dependent on on absorption from the gut, the levels that one obtains can be quite variable. 
and trying to fine-tune that can be a real challenge. So um, really what happens is, is uh, we were sending levels two, three times a day to try to control how much we need to give the patients in terms of their pills. And I think what happened is we ended up giving too much to one individual, and, and this is the problem because it was liver toxic. It causes a very strange phenomena that's only seen with this drug. It leads to multiple occlusions of the veins of the, of the liver and eventually shuts down the liver and destroys it. And, of course, everything else follows. Mm -hmm. And so once that happened to the first patient, I put a study hold on. We reconvened the safety committee. We, we said, are we doing absolutely everything to prevent this kind of thing? What can we do better? Uh, there were a few things that were being suggested, and we were ready to implement all of this. And it all became moot because the company that makes this drug suddenly came out with an IV formulation, mm. which was wonderful because when you take things early, the liver sees it twice, once on the way in and once on the way out. Yep. And so by going to an IV formulation, you got the liver to see it only once on the way out. And in the subsequent um, 18 or 20 patients that we did after the death, we didn't even see anything remotely close to the same kinds of problems. And and we've done another 20 or so since the study, and we've not seen this again. So the, the, the death was due to an idiosyncratic effect of busulfan given orally. Once we shifted to an IV formulation where we could better control the levels, we did not see this problem again. That's not to say that that's the only problem there. There's a lot of problem with a bone marrow transplant. Yeah. Right. This is not a trivial procedure by any means. Uh, and... and the kind of medicines that you have to take for the first year or six months anyways following a transplant because you don't have an active immune system can really be hard on the body. And I, and I, I think that this is why this is not a mainstream therapy for everyone. We do have medications that work for a lot of patients. Sometimes they can work for years. We've had patients, for instance, on interferon for 20 or 25 years, if you can believe it, and they've done very well. But really, there's a group of people who very, very upfront, you know that they're not responders to the types of medicines that we have. And before they would end up in, in wheelchairs or with serious disability, this is where I think a transplant could be considered. About what percent of the patients would that cover? Ooh, my guess is, yeah, well, actually, I don't know. I don't <laughs> know because it... The study that we, the criteria that we put in for this study represented only 5% of the kinds of patients that we see in our clinic. Right. But that was the study requirements. The patients that we've done subsequent to that, I think probably, I wouldn't say no more than 10%. So these are the, the people who are really on the primary progressive end of the no, scale? No, 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 okay. no, 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 not at all, not at all. That's a different disease or a different disease process. So, okay. you know, the problem with that is uh, the, the patients probably develop silent MS for a long time. They're having these silent explosions that they just never know about. And it's only when it accumulates to a point where they start to show progression that we even are aware that they have MS. So in, in effect, those patients are fairly late and probably not amenable to this type of treatment. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's typically people who are Within the first few years of their disease, they're having multiple attacks. Um, usually, they have residual from those attacks. They're not amenable to treatment with the usual types of drugs. Probably within the first five years, you know right away who these people are. Uh, and yeah, sure, some of them have already acquired significant deficits. 
but that's, that's that as long as they have ongoing inflammatory activity, they're a good target for these types of therapies, especially a bone marrow transplant. Once the fires stop burning, once the inflammation is is no longer apparent, uh, the rationale for this type of cell therapy is probably not there. And that's where we come into our other studies that are looking at mesenchymal stem cells that are have the potential for repair. That's where those type of cells would, would probably be used. So speaking of those, I mean, I've heard a lot about uh, mesenchymal stem cells as a kind of immunomodulatory with GVHD, but it seems like you're talking about direct contribution to repair, not an, an immune modulatory function. Is that correct? That's correct. But the fact that they have immunomodulatory function is actually plays in our favor because Otherwise, it's very hard to repair when, when bombs are going off. So imagine, you know, you're, you're trying to build a road in eastern Syria right now, okay? You know, no sooner do you fix the road that somebody throws another landmine on it. And it's, it's, you know, you can never keep up with the damage, right? As long as the bombs keep going off, you're never going to repair. But if you can control the damage, then repair can occur. And I think this is where the dual function of these mesenchymal stem cells may play a role. Late stage, somebody who's acquired, you know, a deficit has been like this for years and years and years. The, uh, the likelihood of repair is very low because you're no longer dealing with just a, a demyelinated uh, axon anymore. You're probably dealing with a, a scar and cut wires, and, and you're just never going to be able to, to regrow a wire through a scar. Yeah. Well, I remember these really impressive, vivid results, I think, from Stephen Goldman, uh, looking at the shiver mouse and the remyelinization using the aborted human fetal cells. What's your take on that? And what do you think, is there a potential to kind of bridge the gap? I know that's not a ready source, the aborted fetal source, but to bridge the gap between like pluripotent stem cells and a kind of fetal stage neural progenitor to the same effect? Uh, Stephen does phenomenal work and, uh, and, and has told us and has shown the world what the possibilities are with the use of some of these embryonic stem cells. And in the models that he's used in the, in the animal models, he's showing you that these cells not only are viable, but they have the potential for you know, real restorative function, at least in, in, at the model level. How do we harness that in humans is, is a bit more difficult because in the animal models, he has to commit these cells down certain pathways and develops them using these external agents and then puts them in and, and, and tests them in, in abnormal genetic models that afford us the ability to see repair to tell us, yes, it can be. It, it, it's telling us that's what it is. But translating that into a human with an ongoing disease, not an artificial one, not a a created genetic anomaly to test out a theory, but in somebody who has a real heterogeneous type disease like MS is going to be more difficult. And uh, they've been trying to launch studies in Rochester for a while uh, with a first, you know, phase one type study. The problem with those cells is that keep, keep in mind, they're not of the body. So as soon as you start to try to uh, put together a trial using embryonic stem cells, you have to realize that you're going to have to immunosuppress the host because you don't want the host to reject the cells. They're not the same as the host. This is where autologous mesenchymal stem cells, I think, have an advantage. There's not going to be any rejection mm-hmm. in, in the autologous system. The, uh, I think the next level of, of cell-based therapy will be when the world is ready to accept iPS cells. 
and there's been some resistance there because in order to de-differentiate cells with, so IPS, I, I hate using jargon, but those are induced pluripotential stem cells. I think you know what I'm talking yes. about. Yeah. Where you can use a cocktail of, uh, of agents. The fellow who discovered that won the Nobel Prize for it, but you can basically take a cell, you know, a scratching of your cheek, so to speak, and send it back to its primordial roots as if it was, you know, an H-stage uh, an, uh, embryo and growing and so that those cells now can have the ability to go uh, be committed down any pathway. And then you can move iPS cells to, say, become myelin-making cells. That's wonderful. You know, you can, we have that technology now. You can do it. But how do you get those cells to integrate into, say, a, a fully functioned organ like the brain and yeah. just, you know, okay, guys, go in there and fix everything, right? That would be the idea. <laughs> Yeah, no funny business either. Just go fix <laughs> yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Don't, no tumors are allowed, right? Yeah. You're not allowed to do that. So, uh, you know, this is a huge step forward. We can make the cells, uh, but we, we to integrate them for function, this is going to be the next challenge. Yeah. Mm. Well, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. I really appreciate getting to speak with you today on this subject and wish you the best. One final question. You're working on this using your treatments on patients currently. How far away are we before we're really using this patient where, you know, people can go into clinics or go into hospitals where bone marrow transplants are possible? Well, you know, there's nothing that stops other groups from doing exactly the same thing. That's what we hoped for when we published extensively in that Lancet paper so many supplemental files. Basically, the recipe is there. If people are, are willing to acknowledge the fact that this is different results than anyone else has obtained. You know, uh, hematologists uh, are a bit like chefs. They don't like changing their recipes. Mm. So if, uh, if, if they recognize that this recipe is one that really consistently works, I think they'd be willing to, to offer it. There's no reason why any transplant unit in the world could not do exactly the same thing as we're doing. And currently, you know, we're the only site that actively is doing it in Canada, but we're trying to entice our colleagues along the same way for at least this uh, type of, of uh, MS. You don't have to do it for everything, but at least it works for MS. For the few patients that clearly are resistant to the other therapies before they amass too much damage, this is an option that should be available. Wow, really exciting. It has just been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time today. Yes, great, thank you, Dr. Freeman. Thanks. Have a great weekend, everyone. You too. Have yeah. a wonderful weekend. Okay. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, Kiki. What a great interview. Really fascinating input from Dr. Freeman. Any thoughts, Kiki? Oh, I mean, personally, I like I mentioned earlier in the show, I have a family history of MS, and my mom had this form of progressive multiple sclerosis as opposed to the relapsing remitting form. And so his research actually hits very close to home for me. And so while this is still early stage research and there are a lot of things that need to be done to get it to a point where it can be used more widely, this is uh, an amazing step forward. Yeah, I think, you know, a long time people have been thinking that there may be this autoimmune component to MS and this pretty much cinches it and I think also offers a really viable treatment that seems to be really effective. So pretty amazing, pretty amazing, pretty exciting for anyone affected by MS and their family, as, as you well know. Yeah. Okay. That closes the show. But before we go, we do have to do our stem cell podcast rant. 
So this rant is our chance to complain about something that bothers us and that most likely bothers you. Dalen, what are we ranting about today? You say we have to do the rant? As we have it's to. some kind of chore? The rant is the best part of my day. Maybe that should be my rant, the fact that I have to rant. <laughs> you just hate ranting. You're just too, you're just too positive. I'm no. going to make you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring you down. Okay, bring me down. Let's go. Let's hear it. What are we ranting about? Today, we are going to rant about fireworks. You know, it being July 4th recently, I was out in Pennsylvania. My in-laws are from there. I was with the kids. In Pennsylvania, I don't know if you know this, but you go to the supermarket and they just have these huge piles of fireworks. Fireworks, fireworks here, fireworks everywhere, all different types. But I got to say, I mean, I don't know. You tell me. What's your take on the fireworks thing going on? You got a young kids. Are you, are you down to play with fireworks? Oh, I love fireworks. I mean, they're, growing up, it was always the, you know, take the fireworks out to a parking lot or, you know, somebody's deck even and or backyard. And you've got the got the flowers and you've got the piccolo peats and you've got the, you know, pops and the bangs and the wishes and the and the lights. And it was always so fun. And it made made it such a celebratory Fourth of July. But then I don't know. I, growing up in California, all of a sudden the fireworks just started disappearing, and it's like, don't do the fireworks because of fire hazards. You're going to burn down California. Yeah, the fireworks to me, my ra- I'm going to get to a little bit of ranting now. It's just not fun anymore. I remember yeah. when I was a kid, it was intense. Yeah, they had these the the fire the mats of firecrackers, mm. Roman candles. I remember oh, driving. Roman candles down. are the best. Have you ever? Did you ever get in a Roman candle fight? Of course. <laughs> That's why they exist. They exist to shoot them at your friends right? and risk terrible injury. Yeah. And not only that, they had these M80. Roman candles oh, that were, I mean, now we're talking like legitimate artillery. Yeah. They would shoot out and then explode with tremendous force. Oh, but now, I mean, rightfully, I'm glad they did this because I've got young kids and a lot of fingers <laughs> were lost in, in my era, not by me. But, you know, you always hear about it. Yeah. Now they're really, I think, watered down. And I get it pisses me off because it takes the thrill of explosion out of my young son's life. That I lived for that. July 4th was I'd go down to Chinatown Everyone was nice. It was all so illicit. There was this element of criminality and mischief to it. And now it's been co-opted by some kind of major corporation. And now pretty much all we have left is sparklers. I'm sick of it. I want my (laughs) M80s back. Cherry bombs, explosives. Cherry bomb. Yeah, it's like chemistry sets. It's like whatever happened to the danger, whatever happened to the real thing. Everything's watered down. Wear your helmet. Wear your helmet. Wear your seatbelt. Make sure you're safe. Liability, Kiki. It's the litigiousness of American society that's the problem. Yeah. Would you rather have all, everyone have all their thumbs and fingers but live in a litigious society? Or can we spare (laughs) a few fingers and thumbs for the joy of mischief? (laughs) It just makes counting, learning how to count a little bit more interesting (laughs) when you're young. Yeah. All right. That was fun. Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter. What did you think of this rant? What do you think of fireworks? Let us know. Send us your ideas at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter. Email us, stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. All right, Dalen. This concludes episode 70 of the Stem Cell Podcast. It was a lot of great stuff in today's episode. Great interview with Dr. Mark Friedman. And um, we will be back again in a couple of weeks for episode 71, the next episode of the Stem Cell Podcast, where we'll have another fantastic interview, of course. 
and deliver the best stem cell papers and science news. I'm looking forward to next time. Yeah, I can't wait, Kiki. I'm looking forward to talking to you and our next guest. Looking forward to it.